0: Hi, my name is Hayden and I'm 10 years old. I'm gonna be reading from Luke chapter nine. Then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest, but Jesus knew their thoughts, so he brought a little child to his side. Then he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. Hi, everybody. Good to be with you. Uh, My name is Luke, if we've not met before, and we're so glad that you can join us uh, for Church at Home today. As a church, we're in a run right now in the Gospel of Luke, which we sort of pick up and and put down throughout the year together. Right now, we're in and around Luke chapter 9 where we're talking about Jesus and power. The island of Capri in Southern Italy is a playground for the rich and famous. Visit and you're gonna see super yachts and fancy restaurants and high fashion uh, boutiques. Capri is this place synonymous with opulence and wealth. And the Roman ruins that are there tell us that it was the same in Jesus' day. By the time that Jesus was in his mid-twenties, the Roman emperor Tiberius had completed this, um, this really monstrous palace on Capri. And he lived there from AD 27 until his death in AD 37. And the stories about Tiberius and Capri are legendary and many of them are in truth uh, too grotesque to, sh- to share uh, here. But for 10 years, the emperor lived in this extreme seclusion. He lived in this extreme luxury and paranoia because he feared his enemies' schemes in the Roman Senate. To be fair to Tiberius, Rome had this nasty history of conspiring against her leaders So he shut himself away, indulging himself every way imaginable until he died. This was the ultimate picture of greatness or power in the Roman Empire in Jesus' lifetime. When Jesus was asked, if if you'll remember in the Gospels, uh, if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, Tiberius was the one that they were asking about, the very top of the food chain. Everyone below him was following suit. Greatness in the ancient world meant power. It meant wealth, but it also meant removal from the masses. It meant safety. It meant assurance that you will live as long as humanly possible. And after that, that you'll leave a formidable legacy. I wonder how much of that has changed for us today. Between Tiberius and Jesus, we hear a tale of two kings and remember them for very different reasons. One hoards to excess, locking himself away, serving only number one. The other gives to excess, opening his circle to anyone who shows interest. One was untouchable. The other, you could say, was the most hands-on figure in human history. I wonder if Tiberius and Jesus spent nights looking up at the same moon and stars. How could two men see things so differently? In the story that we just heard, um, we find Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, and the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And there's a few stories about this in the Gospels, where this kind of thing is, is going on in the group. So it might not have been an isolated incident. Who is the best? The cream of the crop. The top dog disciple, they wondered. In Mark and Matthew's telling of the story, uh, Jesus asks them what they had been arguing about on the road to someplace, and they didn't answer him because we're told in those gospels that they were too embarrassed to answer his question. So the group obviously had, you'd have to say, some kind of, or enough kind of an understanding that, that this wasn't appropriate. They'd spent enough time with Jesus to have known better. But still, they couldn't help themselves, could they? They just had to establish a pecking order. They needed to climb on top of one another in order to feel important, to feel loved, to feel safe. Can we blame them? Just look at the world that, that they lived in, a world of dominance and dog-eat-dog, uh, a, a world that was, was hard to live in, a world ruled by Tiberius and turning the question on ourselves, turning the question in our direction, can we help ourselves in moments like that? Just look at the world that we're living in, full of the same in many ways. The story of Capri and Tiberius wasn't taken as this cautionary tale in the West. People still scramble there today to feel secluded and powerful, to visit, and to fantasize about being an emperor for a day. We hear this all the time in our society. People living in this illusory reality, trying to make, make something of themselves that they are not. We hear famous people say things like this all the time. Lady Gaga once said, I used to walk down the street like I was a star. I want people to walk around delusional rather, about how great they think they can be and then fight so hard for every day until the lie becomes the truth. Greatness, as the world sees it, is always attractive. And it was to Jesus' very close friends too. Here they were with Jesus, the very embodiment of humility and service, and they were arguing about who should get the best seat In the house. That's perhaps the first thing to point out about this story. Just because we're in Jesus' company, it doesn't mean we're going Jesus' way. It's entirely possible to call myself a Christian and yet live nothing like Christ. And this is the first of two stories in this chunk in Luke's gospel where the disciples get it wrong and Jesus has to correct them. Why? Because human ideas about power are always suspect, no matter who has them. And human ideas about power are always suspect because we are all sinners, including those of us who claim to follow Jesus. Now, sinner isn't really a very popular word today, but it just describes someone who's gone off the rails. That's that's really all it means. It just describes someone who's going the wrong way. Uh, Literally, in the original language, it just describes someone who's missed the mark, missed the target. And therefore, someone like that, someone who's going the wrong way, is in need of someone else to show them the right way, to show them where the target actually is. In this little story, Jesus is showing his disciples who are still sinners, no matter how saintly they're depicted later in history, he's showing his disciples that they've gone off the rails. They need to get back into alignment. Maybe a story like this in the gospels is good evidence that these books in some way can be trusted. Eventually, those same disciples ensured that stories of their failures were told honestly. And what other motivation would there be to show yourself in a bad light of emerging leaders unless you simply felt compelled not to tell a lie, but to tell the truth about yourself and about Jesus? It's certainly highly unusual in ancient literature. Usually people, as we've heard, like to try and make a lie sound like the truth, not the other way around. The point is, No one is entirely holy, entirely right, except Jesus. So there's nothing wrong with admitting and taking a deep breath and admitting that we're sinners, that we're prone to going off the rails. In fact, when we do that, it's liberating. It's fundamentally what it first means to be a Christian. It's the admittance and the willingness to say out loud, I need help. And all we're saying when we admit that to ourselves is that we've somehow taken a wrong turn and we need redirection. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's a very popular prayer, which simply goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's incredible the perspective that you gain, the grace you invite if you pray that little prayer in a moment when you're finding it hard to be a Christian, when you're finding it hard to go Jesus' way. Pray it 10 times or more in a row, while taking some slow and deep breaths and you gain even more perspective and you find that even more grace opens up in your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's no sense in sugarcoating it. It can be hard to be a Christian and it always has been. There's this massive gravitational-like force which is pulling me in the other direction from Jesus. There are voices that tell me to live like Tiberius, to dominate my way toward upward mobility. Of course, we're not always obvious or shameless about it. We're usually devilishly subtle, aren't we? A passive-aggressive jab to a co-worker to make sure they know their place, a snide remark to one friend about another, a disregarding of another person's experience, a lie on social media projecting to the world that we have it all together when in our guts we know we're a mess. We've got lots of little ways of arguing among ourselves about who is the greatest. And many days, we think they go undetected. You know what? It's exhausting. It's exhausting to live that way because worrying about your own greatness is born of fear. It's not born of love. It's rooted in the anxiety that we're not loved that we're not cared for, that we're not safe. And so we have to drum up that respect from others, that perceived uh, temporal security from sources other than God. And today there's this entire younger generation online aiming at illusory greatness in a way which is eating them up inside, sending many young people spiraling into anxiety and depression, all because they've grown up in a world obsessed about becoming great. And we've given them that world. And then we gave them the technological access to obsess over those projections without restraint. It's exhausting being a sinner and trying to solve your own problems, heal your own pain with more sin. Well, the disciples, thankfully, had Jesus to snap them out of that exhausting and ultimately self-defeating spiral. And we have Jesus too. We hear in this story this phrase, but Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knows our thoughts too. Do you find that a disturbing thought or a comforting one? The more that we get to know Jesus, the more we will find it to be, in fact, a comforting thought. With Jesus, we experience the freedom of being known, the joy of not having to pretend to be something that we aren't any longer. He can see that we're tired He can see that we're wrestling with what it means to be a Christian today in a time when posturing and projecting greatness is as popular as ever, even amongst Christians ourselves. He can see that our ideas about human power are always suspect. And it doesn't surprise him in the least. That's why he's walking with his disciples in the first place. It's why he'll wash their feet the night before he dies. He knew how much grace and guidance that they desperately needed and was more than happy to share it with them to the drop of his last blood. And he's more than happy to share that same grace and guidance with us today. Jesus knows you Jesus knows me better than I know myself, and he's here to help. The story, I think, is also wonderful because of the contrast that Jesus draws by inviting the little child to come and stand by his side. Uh, In one simple picture, Jesus turns this moment on its head, and it's as if Jesus says, Don't worry about trying to topple one another. That is silly. Try lifting up this little one instead. There's nothing to be gained really from pretending that you're a little emperor. See what serving the most forgettable among you will do and what that will do for the world instead. It shouldn't be lost on us as we read this story that children were quite often forgettable in the ancient world, subhuman really in in many societies. And it shouldn't be lost on us either that the same goes in our time. The stories of the unborn, the stories of the enslaved, the stories of the oppressed surround us, especially in Canada today. And there's no sense in burying those national or international stories or shutting Our ears to them. If we shut those voices out, we might well be shutting God out. Because Jesus said in this story that welcoming the often forgettable means welcoming Him and the one who sent Him. If we reject or ignore those among us, like this little child in the story, we reject and ignore God. For Jesus, it really is that simple. But if you pay close attention to Jesus' words in the story, you won't actually hear a dire warning, which is what that just sounded like, though it it might be right to hear it that way. But we actually hear also this opening up of possibility. Jesus says, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my father who sent me. What a mysterious and wonderful thought. What might open up to us if we forget about paving our own paths to glory for a moment and turn our attention to the care of another human being? The sense we get from Jesus here is that we'll not only be welcoming a fellow human, we'll be welcoming God. And maybe this is what Jesus also means when he says, give up your life and you'll gain it. When we let go of our delusions of grandeur, hoping that the lie will become the truth, we find the truth itself. The truth that we are loved, that we're accepted, that we're cared for, that we're safe with God through Jesus. A moment with God in the lives of the little or forgettable ones around us is just around every corner. God's over here, God's over there. God is all around us as we engage one another and care for one another. You know, this week, um, our church hosted this annual arts camp that we've been talking about through the service. And it's been served by this incredible team of ministry leaders and volunteers. They were, this week, quite literally, welcoming the little ones, like we hear about in this story. And weeks like these, um, they aren't institutional or governmental, but are labored on by thousands across our country, to love and serve children as Jesus did. And as much as we should listen to stories from children from our shared national past, and we have to do that, we must also continue to invest in the stories of children today. So if you pray, please pray for the children who attended arts camp this week and for all those children across our country who need to know the real story of Jesus, the real love, the real security, the real possibility that Jesus brings. Also uh, this week, we've seen more reports emerging about the toll that the isolation this past year has taken for those who were in care facilities or reliant on in home care, including, including the elderly. When you hear some of those stories of people being alone for weeks on end, some of the months, the stories are heartbreaking. And they're heartbreaking because we have this tendency to forget, even ignore those living on, on such margins. I think it's important to say this, God bless you if you've done something, anything during the pandemic to care for family, friends, patients, clients who were facing isolation and extreme vulnerability. I think we're really quite certain that Jesus is talking about you when he describes the greatest in the kingdom. Thank you for serving humbly where nobody else saw. So that's it, really. As Jesus followers, we have a choice. We can set sail for Capri along with Tiberius to live in paranoia and seclusion, cut off from one another and therefore cut off from God. Or we can take Jesus' path of humility, of recognition of our need because we're sinners and gain more than we bargained for. What do we gain? Well. We gain connection, and in a sense, we gain our very humanity, don't we? We gain each other, and in turn, we gain God. Aren't you glad that we don't have to pretend to be little emperors anymore, living on our silly little islands, waiting to die? Jesus knows a much better way the way of truth, the way of life, leading into something far beyond I could manipulate, control or contrive myself. Bless you. Thanks for joining today.